Good morning. We are back from a great weekend celebrating our 22nd wedding anniversary. And um, I had planned out a really nice weekend up in uh, Santa Barbara with Angela. Had a great time. It's, it's always great uh, knowing that uh, we get a little break, but it's even better when you know you leave it in the hands of, of guys who can really preach. Uh, so thankful for Brian and uh, really all of our pastors and elders that, uh, that get the opportunity to preach. Uh, I'm most blessed of pastors to serve with, with such a, uh, an amazing group. So today we are in the parable of the talents, and it's Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So find that in your Bibles, and it's part of the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, also um, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's chapter 25, 24 and 25. Now this was Jesus' last public preaching before the cross. And Jesus was telling his disciples some things that were going to take place, what things would be like when he returns, and he wanted them to prepare. Now you know you always feel better when you're prepared, right? I mean, even this last weekend, I prepared, I planned out a really nice weekend for Angela and I. You always feel better when you're prepared. Well, Jesus wanted them to respond in the right way, to be prepared for his return. Now, it's been like 2,000 years that Jesus' disciples asked them this question, you know, what, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus answered very decisively so that they would be prepared for that day. So please stand with me. We're going to read Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Let me just say this too. God's word is really clear concerning things to come at Christ's return and how we should respond. In God's economy, you, you, you can't just grab the wheel and figure everything out. There's a lot of things we plan out that we, just, we kind of know and we kind of forecast it and we can figure it out. This is different. And the reason why it is different is because God has pretty much set in motion a countdown alarm that we can't see. And we don't know when, when time will be up. He's all in control of that process. No man can know it or stop it. And so these are sobering words. He's using a parable to make the point once again that you must be ready for his return. Verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me the five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that you are in control of this process, Lord, that that you know the end from the beginning. Lord, you know when you will return. And may we all listen to your word and get ready. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. The flow of this passage today is very easy to track. A rich man goes on a journey. Before leaving, he entrusts riches to his servants. There are two good guys and one bad guy. He returns from the journey. He gets an accounting from each. He checks out the balance sheet. The two guys he finds acted wisely. They are blessed. The one bad guy acts shamefully and is cursed. It's a very simple passage to look at. We see three parts, three main movements in this passage. First of all, the master and his riches, verses 14 through 18. And then the good guys and their reward, verses 19 to 23. And lastly, the bad guy and his rejection, verses 24 to 30. So we're going to go through those three things today. Now the context is important. The context is judgment at the end of time. Just like the parable of the ten virgins, which we saw several weeks ago, where the wise and the foolish, we see here two heavily contrasted groups, the faithful and the unfaithful, believers and unbelievers, those who believe and trust in God's provision for a Savior and whose lives reflect it, and those who do not. I want to remind you, especially if you're new to grace, we are in the midst of a series within a series. We are in the midst of a little series within a big series. Now, the big series is going through all of Matthew's gospel, chapters 1 through 28, verse by verse. The little series is called Living in the Last Days, chapters 24 and 25. We're like in the ninth or tenth week now of that series. We're talking about the end times, eschatology. We tackle this subject, it's like hugging a whale. Very hard to get a handle on. It is a subject that has spawned countless controversies, countless debates, caused lots of confusion, and worse, division in the body of Christ. Now, when you approach the order of events associated with Christ's return, there are several common ways that that people lean towards. One is you get hyper-involved with deciphering, you know, minute details. 
And, and you start to think of yourself as somewhat of an expert when it comes to the end times. Now, the other, the other way a lot of people go is they, they get completely detached. They don't really care. I heard someone say this week, you know, I'm, I'm about done with the end times here. I've already figured it all out. Let's move on to something else. Just the person needs to hear this message. Now, if you tend to hold on too tightly to the non-essentials, you need to least lighten up. I've said that how many times? Like 150 times in the last nine weeks. If you tend to be uninterested or content to stay ignorant, you need to realize how often the Bible talks about the end times. There's like 150 passages in the Bible where the end times is the major point. Little series. The big idea of the little series is this. And I've said this a lot of times. You need to love Jesus while you long for his return and live for his glory. That Christians should have a growing love for their Savior. They should, they should be more and more in love with Jesus Christ. And, and this intensifying longing to see him again. Come Lord Jesus, the last basically verse of the Bible. And they should also have an active engagement in fruitful living for the glory of God. That until he comes, they ought to be serving him with all their might. Now this has been the major emphasis of this series because this is the Bible's major emphasis on this topic. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.8, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. What day? The day he returns. And he says not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Christians should love, should should long for, should live for the appearing of Christ. Now, we need to go back a little bit in Matthew 24 just to give you an idea of where we've been. First few verses of Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples come to him with that three-part question. And they're, they're asking, and that's, that question still reverberates to this day. He answers the question decisively and in a very authoritative way as the authoritative king. When we think of, of a king, we think of you know, England's modern-day hood ornament king, uh, uh, an unnecessary decoration. But here we are talking about a real king. The whole point of Matthew's gospel is Jesus is the king, the sovereign, the one that we must uh, uh, answer to. Now, Jesus, in his answer about the end of time and his return, said there are going to be a lot of signs. And, and those signs will be just the beginning of, of birth pains. Just the beginning. Not the actual event. And he said there will be gross idolatry happening. And there will be dis, uh, desolation. There will be tribulation that will come upon God's people as never before. And then the second coming. Then Christ's glorious appearing. Then the day of the Lord when Christ returns. And what Jesus is saying over and over again is, you better be ready. You had better be ready for my return. Whether I come back sooner than you think, or whether I come back later than you think. Some of the examples he gives were the idea of, if he comes back sooner than you think, he gives examples of the days of Noah. He has seven examples here. The days of Noah, um, two people working out in the field and one taken, one left, uh, a thief in the night, 
Two servants, one good, one bad. We looked at the parable of the ten virgins in the early part of chapter 25. The whole idea of examine yourself. Even if he comes back later than you think he will. Don't get lazy. Don't get too comfortable. Examine yourself and, and preach the gospel. Well, today we look at the sixth example that Jesus is giving to drive this point home. The parable of the talents. So let's look at that first the first section, the master and his riches. Verse 14. I love it. it just, he just starts with, it'll be like. What'll be like? Well, this parable of the talents is so closely related to the parable of the ten virgins that they share the same intro. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. He's saying, here's what the kingdom of heaven will be like when I return. So it will be like, at that time, when Jesus returns, there will be a day of judgment, there will be a day of blessing, there will be a a day of of wrath, and a day of, of receiving those who love him. Here's what the kingdom of heaven will be like. And the moving parts of this parable are pretty easy to figure out, except for one. Okay, so first of all, the master, the the rich man, how do we know he's rich? Because he had a bunch of money he gave out to his servants before he left. The, The rich master, that's Jesus, that's God incarnate. He entrusted his property, his riches to his servants. That was the best way to safeguard your, your goods when you went on a trip. You didn't have a safe deposit box or a, or a safe that you could put things into. You gave it to your trusted servants. They would take care of it. So the master is Jesus. The servants are the professing church, the gathered church that says, hey, we're waiting for Jesus. But as we know, and as Jesus has already shown, in that, in that church there will be the wheat, the good, the, the good servants, and the weeds, the false servants. People say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they really aren't. And it will be known at the end of time, if not before. Now, the long trip is the time between the first and second comings of Christ. Another easy one. And the return to settle the accounts, that's the end of time. Another easy one. The hard one is the talents. What are the talents? This word talent is used 17 times in this passage. It is the big deal in this passage. What does it mean? Now what makes things hard is that our English word talents comes from the Greek word talenton or talentos. Different different variations, but basically we got our word from the Greek word. So it's really easy for us to go, yeah, our talents, what we can do, uh, what we're able to do, what what we're gifted to do. And just use your talents for God and you'll go to heaven the only problem with that one is you get painted into a really weird corner on that one you don't, you don't get to heaven by your works you don't get to heaven by, by what good things you do for God a lot of people think that I thought that before I became a believer I mean the first 20 years of my life I mean when I was a little tiny kid I didn't really think about it but, but the, the years that I was thinking about it I thought yeah I gotta be really good try to be a good guy and God will let me into heaven wrong thinking so you can't really go with that idea here with the parable of the talents because you got to remember the context what's the context judgment at the end of time so it's got to mean something bigger than that now there's various views some people say it's just the skills you have you know it's your abilities or some will say it's your spiritual gift as a christian it's your spiritual gift now if it's that we had another problem because the bad guy got got one too and he went to hell. Now, oh, we already know that. I, I kind of gave, I gave it away, didn't I? It was pretty obvious, wasn't it? 
I mean, cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woo, man. I, I went to a church once where there was a guy who could not help but grind his teeth all through the worship service. Mmm. It just made you want to jump out of your skin. You don't want to be around someone who grinds their teeth. And we'll find out about that a little bit later. But I'll tell you, the guy goes to hell. So it can't be spiritual gifts. Because that means he's a Christian that lost his salvation because he didn't exercise his gift the right way. I don't see anyone in the Bible that says that that's what God's going to do. He was false. He was, he was not real. So what is the talent? What is, what is it? Well, what you've got to understand is what it was back then. What was the talent back then? A talent back then was a unit of, of, of monetary measure. It wasn't a coin. It was a, ta- a measure of weight. So if you had a talent of gold, it was worth more than a talent of silver. In this passage here, there's the word for silver. And so uh, the word translated money in verse 18 is, is silver, literally silver. And you know it was a lot of money. So it was, it was in probably silver, and, and it's, it was worth upwards to 6,000 days work or upwards to $500,000 maybe in today's earning power. So these servants were very trusted and were entrusted with a lot. So it wasn't like the guy who got one was gypped, you know, like, oh, you know, he's, he's lame or something. They were all good money managers, supposedly, and trusted by the master. So what's the talent, though? Well, if it's this measure of weight... It's not specific in terms of coinage. Therefore, you really can't say it's specific in terms of, oh, it's spiritual gifts, or it's this, or it's that. It's, it's really bigger than that. It's bigger than that. The preferred view is this. The talents are God's gracious gifts in Christ. All the things he blesses his church with. His resources, his riches. It includes his word. It includes the Holy Spirit. It includes the things you're able to do. It includes all the things that the professing church would enjoy. Even the gathering, even the preaching of the word. It's the master's riches. Owned and distributed and empowered by him. It's God's entrusted resources. The master and his riches. That's the first part. Now, the second part is the good guys and their reward. This is the great part, you know. Now, at the end, we're going to get to the really sad part, but we get to rejoice in this one, okay? Verses 19 through 23. He comes back after a long time. So this is the situation where even if he comes back later than you think, be ready. Be, it's like this. The ten virgins were waiting for the bridegroom. These three servants were working for the master. So instead of waiting, as you wait, you are to be working, you are to be serving, you are to have a life that is, that is towards Christ, not against him. So the good guys and their reward, they give good reports. He asked to see the balance sheet, and it's really good. And they made progress. They grew his resources while he was gone. He was gone a long time, and they both doubled their money. Five for the five and two more for the one with two. And both got the same commendation. It wasn't like, oh, you're better because you got, you got more. It was well done, good and faithful servant. This is, this is Jesus giving you an A with a smiley face. This is saying, excellent. 
I'm proud of you. You did a great job. You, you, you trusted me. You, you did what you were called to do. Aren't words powerful? It isn't true that words can't harm you. It's just not true. Words can crush your spirit. Words can crush a person. An ill-timed word can, can last a lifetime of pain. And a well-timed word. Do you ever get a, a, a really good word from someone you really respect? Someone you really like? You can go like a month on that word or a year on that word or even 10 years on that word. Maybe a lifetime. Thinking, knowing someone's in your corner, knowing someone's for you and not against you. I've kept one letter. I keep things, but I don't even know where most of the letters are that I've received, but I keep one letter right here. This letter I received in 1995 and this letter is from my father it's a handwritten letter two pages I'm not going to read it to you it's my letter but in this letter my dad says I love you I'm proud of you I like the man that you've become you know why I've kept this letter we all yearn to hear those words and especially from those closest to us especially even from our own father it would be a good one to use on Father's Day, wouldn't it? Here's what I love about these words to these two servants. Well done. Excellent. Good job. Here's the deal. That word from God is on the table for you and me. It's a possibility. It's in the realm of possibility that we could hear those words from Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Most of us just think, you know, I'm just blowing it so much. I'm just, I've failed so often. I've been unfaithful to God so much. Oh, there was, there's never, there's no chance for me to hear those words. Maybe he'll say, hey, you did all right. I'm going to let you in the back door. Make sure no one sees you. No, this is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Here, walk down the red carpet into heaven. That, that's the idea. Enter into the joy of the master is going to heaven. Remember the context. The end of time. The return of Christ. The day of the Lord. This is it. The countdown alarm, it went off. There's no more time. No more chances. Whatever, whatever is, is at that point. Hebrews 9.27, there is appointed unto man once to die and then what? The judgment. So, I love this. There's this divine prophet sharing going on. Enter into the joy of your master. They were, in those days, if you were a, a trusted servant such as these two and you were entrusted with a large sum like this and you, you blessed your master in such a way because you thought so well of him that you wanted to use his resources in the best possible way, you would actually share in the bounty. You would actually share in the goods. That's a great picture of being a Christian, being a believer in Christ. You share even his holiness and his righteousness. It's his and he gives it to you. And the Bible tells us, Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are enjoying, if you are in Christ, you, you have what God wants his church to have. The joy of the master. I, I love the fact 
And I think it leads us to awestruck worship of our Savior that it is in the realm of possibility, it is on the table as an option that we would hear from God to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't count yourself out of that possibility. This picture of heaven, joy, the master, It's beyond belief. Go with me to Revelation 19. You know, a lot of people write books about heaven nowadays. You can read 90 minutes in heaven by some guy who says he went there. I just don't believe that. If you're there, just stay. <laughs> if, you, if you got in, why are you coming back here? Really? Heaven is a real place. Why didn't you stay there? You can read books about heaven. N.T. Wright wrote a great one. Randy Alcorn wrote a great one. But even in their books, the good ones, about what heaven, they haven't been to heaven. In fact, I heard a story once of someone who goes to a bookstore and, goes, and sees Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, and goes, hey, another book by someone who went to heaven. And the, the salesman's like, no, 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 no. Uh, this person didn't go to heaven. And the person's like, well, who'd want to read a book like that? Who'd want to read a book uh, about heaven from someone who hasn't been there? And the guy's like, well, no, no, no. It's, it's about what the Bible says heaven will be like. But even in those books, the good ones, you got Bible verses mixed to guy, guys, some guy's word. And it's very easy to, to go over to what the, the man said and go, that sounds pretty cool. And it's all conjecture, right? You got to go with the Bible. Let's see a picture from Revelation 19 about heaven. Verse 4. 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Those are Christian words. So be it, praise God. And from the throne came a voice saying, Yeah, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Just praise God. It's probably... A point of debate, but my thought is this. You really think when you get to heaven, you're going to be like, hey God, I got a list of questions that I, I need you to answer for me. I've been waiting a long time for these. He goes, really? You've been waiting a long time? What, 40 years? Wow. Wow, you are awesome. No, I think that we're going to be so enraptured with worshiping the Lord Jesus, and, and I think that all the questions will be answered. I don't, I don't find any. You might be able to find me the Bible verse that says, when you get to heaven, bring your list of questions. But isn't that a common thing a Christians like to say? Oh, I can't wait to get to heaven for all my questions to be answered. Well, how about I can't wait to get to heaven to praise Jesus forever? Well, that would be cool. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's like those two servants who were righteous in Christ's righteousness. It's a Christian who takes and says, you know what? God has saved me. I want to serve him. All right. So here's the deal. What would you do if you had two free hours and a pocket full of cash? Oh, and the two hours weren't earmarked for anything, and either was the money. 
discretionary coin and discretionary time. What would you do if you had those two hours and some extra cash? I threw this on a few people this week and kind of baited them into it. So I got to hear all sorts of stories of how we're going to go shopping for new outfits and buy cool clothes and, and eat nice food and what have you. Someone told me they were going to give some to Vietnam, which is cool. And some even said they're going to put it all in the bank, you know. But what would you do? I know if you're like me, and it takes one to know one, you would be thinking, I got these things I've been wanting to get done. I got this kind of pleasurable thing that I want to go do. And we think about ourselves. But what if, you know where I'm going with this, what if you use that two hours and that extra cash for the kingdom? For the kingdom of God. For Jesus and the gospel. You're like, oh, come on, I got to blow it on that. This is my chance. Now, I, I think I probably shared Jesus with more people in the past three months than I have in the past three years. And I'm not proud of that fact, actually. Because that means the last three years, I haven't, I've been preaching the gospel on Sundays, but throughout the week, yeah, I started becoming a little too timid about it. I started becoming a little too, I wonder if they're going to, you know, shoot me or, or laugh at me if I preach the gospel to them or just the whole rejection thing or the whole embarrassment thing or I've waited too long. <laughs> they know too much about me, you know. Do something for the kingdom. Now, here's the deal. Half of you are going, two hours, I don't have it. I'm the busiest person in the world. Um, and, and I don't have any extra cash. But what if today, actually right this moment, you decided, every one of you decided, I'm going to set aside two hours this week and some extra cash this week. And I'm going to put it in my pocket and I'm going to pray and say, God, what do you want me to do for your kingdom with this? We get hyper-committed to a lot of things. And our lives get taken over by those things. Like diets and hobbies and collections and ways of parenting and saving for retirement and all sorts of things. And we become addicted to the way we think we're supposed to do something because we're idol makers. We can, the human heart is an idol factory. We can make an idol out of anything. But God is, is an idol smasher. He is lovingly iconoclastic with us. He wants to free us from that. I'll spray to all fields here with an application of maybe what it might look like for you to live for the glory of God as a Christian. If you are a Christian, obey God's word. Dependently pray. Read your Bible and love it. And and get baptized if you've never been baptized. And preach the gospel daily in your household and with your neighbors and with your co-workers and with your classmates and your teammates and whoever else you run into. Boldly and humbly and lovingly. You say, well, is, is it really this broad of an application for the parable of the talents on believers? Absolutely. Absolutely. God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. How about church membership? You say, well, I've been coming to Grace for a long time. Well, if you're not a member, you should be one right away. Because 
You need to commit yourself to this local body and, and submit yourself to the leadership of this church who cares for your soul and who's been called to shepherd the flock. God has designed, by the way, his, his big C church to be broken down and decentralized into little C local churches to know and be known and serve God's purposes together in, in different locations. So corporate worship's important. Thank you for being here, by the way. Thank you for, for committing yourself to be here. And I see a lot of faces I see all the time. And, and that's awesome. Well done. <laughs> but I want you right now to decide to live differently in some way. Outside the doors, when you leave today, there's a big stack of Bibles and some pamphlets on how, uh, to give people about how, how much Jesus loves them. Use them. Ooh, novel idea. Give out Bibles and, and pieces of paper that explain how Jesus loves people. Now, look, you say, well, I don't need those. Yes, you do. Now, you don't have to bring one every time you go, but you need the Word of God, and you need to, to give them something as they go. Oh, yeah, you do. Okay, now we got to talk about the bad guy now. We were, gonna get, we were, getting, we were building to this, right? we we got to talk about the bad guy and his rejection. Verses 24 to 30. I, um, all I can tell you is there was a bad report. Um, the bottom line didn't equate. But here is the deal. The bad guy accuses the good master. Now this, this master wasn't schizo, okay? He wasn't the good master for one group and a bad master for the other. Okay? And by the way, he wasn't acknowledging that he was a bad master when he said, you knew that I did these things? He's, he's using his, his stuff against him is what he's doing. Uh, he, he says, you're a hard man. Uh, he goes, you're, you're, you're a bad guy, basically. You're, you're, the wicked servant basically lies about the master, accuses him of thievery, blamed the master for his inaction. Well, you were, I, I, I knew you to be this way. You know, what, you know what that shows? He didn't know him. He didn't know his master. That's the kind of person that Jesus will say, I never knew you. Get lost. <laughs> oh, you are lost. You didn't avail yourself of the gospel. And so he says, here's what you should have done. If I was that way, put it in the bank. Give me some interest. If I was that kind of a man. The bad guy opposed to the truth makes no further progress. His folly was evident to all. He was rejected. He was fired. And it was painful. Now, if you get fired, it's, it's very painful especially when it's not deserved. I was fired for cause once when I was in college, working at a bank. I didn't steal any money. I was just late all the time. I changed that, though. That's why I want to be early all the time. But this is uh, getting terminated for cause. Pink slip. Now, what's up with the weeping and teeth grinding? That phrase, I have ran past that phrase so many times. I mean, it's a scary phrase, right? What's the deal with the weeping and the teeth grinding? It's, it's, it's seven times in the New Testament, this phrase, and six of them are in Matthew. So it's important. Why is it so important? He goes, uh, cast the wor- worthless servant, verse 30, into the outer darkness. So the dark, dark. The, the outside darkness. You know when you're out in the mountains and it's just like no, nothing, no lights or anything, and you turn off your headlights? It's black, pitch black. The darkest dark, the blackest night, or like outer space or whatever. 
cast them out. It's, it's always used. That word cast out is always used in terms of casting or throwing someone into hell or the lake of fire. Weeping. That's, that's the idea of anguish. Anguish. But gnashing of teeth. That's the idea of angry grief. Angry grief. Think about it. Grinding your teeth. If you hear someone grinding their teeth, it makes you want to jump out of your skin. There's lots of weeping and teeth grinding, grief and anguish and regret, but it's, it's anger towards God that keeps on building and building and building. Hatred, enmity towards him. Think about Stephen's killers in Acts chapter 7. They angrily gnashed their teeth at him as he stood strong for his faith in Christ. Now let's get really serious. The Bible distinguishes between those who have faith in Christ and those who do not. Heaven, entering into the joy of the Master, will be the residence of those who have trusted in Christ. Hell, being cast out into the outer darkness, will be the residence of those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life. You can check it in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Anyone's name who is not found written, anyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is, um, it's what R.C. Sproul calls the place of God's disfavor. It's a big red F from God. There's probably no topic in Christian theology that is more difficult to deal with, especially on an emotional level, than that of hell. The doctrine of hell. It has become so controversial in modern times that it is, that it is almost never addressed. And old-fashioned revival preaching was characterized by hellfire and brimstone, right? So everyone wants to stay away from that. It was associated with the Great Awakening in the 18th century, and no theologian or preacher was, was more connected to that than Jonathan Edwards. He's probably most famous for a sermon he preached on July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut, at a church there. And the sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He had preached it already at his church and he went to this other church and preached it. And he was actually accused of being sadistic because... People were saying, you just dangling people, uh, hell in front of people to scare them into believing. That was a wrong accusation against Jonathan Edwards. You know what his passion was? His passion was that he loved his congregation so much, he didn't want them to go to hell. So he preached on it because he didn't want them to go there. I don't want you to go there. Darkness hides staggering devastation. Day soon breaks, and the sun's rays reveal block upon city block of indiscernible rubble. Precious memories scraped into nondescript piles of a harsh new reality. What's that? May 20th. F5 tornado packing 200 mile an hour winds cut a 2 mile wide 17 mile long swath directly through the town of Moore, Oklahoma kills 24 people uh, 13,000 homes destroyed 33,000 people in some way affected monetary damage of 2 billion dollars for miles homes swept clean off their foundations 
Entire neighborhoods reduced to like concrete lily pads in a sea of rubble. And our hearts go out to those in Oklahoma. But that is nothing, nothing compared to the everlasting devastation of hell. Nothing. Jonathan Edwards, his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was based on one verse in the Bible. And it was in the Old Testament. You're going to laugh when you hear it. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. That was his text. <laughs> Their foot shall slide like they're going to slip on a banana peel or something. Well, you listen to what he says. I want you to listen to this. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites. They were God's visible people and they lived under means of grace and that notwithstanding all God's wonderful works they had wrought towards that people yet remained as is expressed void of counsel having no understanding in them. It implies, he says, that they were always exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction as he that walks in slippery places in every moment liable to fall without warning. And he says the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time has not come. You know what Jonathan Edwards was saying? The countdown alarm isn't done yet. But you don't know when it's going to do the final tick. He says there is nothing that keeps wicked men at one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. And by the mere pleasure of God, I mean, he says, his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation. And here's why he preached these words. He wanted the unsaved people in his congregation to come to faith in Christ. So do I. And I don't know who you are. You know, I was telling someone the other day, you know what I feel like we're doing at Grace right now? We're just raking through the fields over and over again, gleaning the fields and saying, if you're here and you hear the gospel and you don't know Jesus, you are in big trouble. For unbelievers, here's what Jonathan Edwards says. That world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open and you have nothing to stand on nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. If you're an unbeliever, there is only one thing for you to do. Before your time is up and you do not know, stop running away from or fighting against God. I don't know who I'm talking to right now. I have no idea. As I look in your eyes, who you are, I just don't know. Because the Bible tells me only God knows those who are his. 
And whoever names the name of the Lord needs to abstain from wickedness. That would be the idea of being that servant who uses his master's resources for his glory till he comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you alone know the hearts of all men and women and boys and girls. Lord, we we want to acknowledge that our birth is not enough to make us right with God. Even if we grew up in a Christian home, we've got to praise God and look and learn from those who are sold out to Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge that in your word you say, uh, Jesus said it to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Lord, may those who do not know you be made alive by you through faith, through belief, through trust in Jesus and his work for them on the cross, paying the penalty for their sin, sacrificing himself for them. Lord God, we, we, we put ourselves at your mercy.